The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, filmmaker Steve James on a spy in the Manhattan Project. Ted, you know, of course, in the film, explains that he had a real serious concern that the United States having this weapon all to itself, what might they do with that weapon, especially with the Soviet Union? He didn't do this for the Soviet regime. He did this because he thought it would save the Soviet people. Because should the U.S. do some kind of preemptive strike on the Soviet Union in the post-war world, you know, millions and millions of lives would have been lost. You know, so many espionage stories are about geopolitics and the drama of it all. And to me, this was not that story. I mean, this is not The Americans, the TV series. Steve James, welcome to Chatter. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Great to be here. Well, we're here to talk about your new film, A Compassionate Spy, which arrives at a a very uh, opportune moment uh, given the anniversary of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because your story centers on the Manhattan Project uh, and an individual who was one of the scientists on that team who I think probably a lot of listeners may not be familiar with. And I confess, I did not know his story either, a man named Ted Hall. Let's start by just giving us the the kind of the press's sketch. Who was Ted Hall and what did he do uh, that led you to make a film about him and his life? Well, Ted Hall was the youngest uh, scientist at Los Alamos. He joined the team as an 18-year-old graduate of Harvard, if you can imagine that. Uh, physicist. And by the time he turned 19, he had decided that he was worried about the U.S. having this terrible weapon all to itself in the post-war world. And so he made this momentous decision to decide and pass secrets to the Soviet Union. And that that would could have put him in a lot of trouble if he if he were, if he were <laughs> caught for doing it. Um, but yes, I mean he is essentially is it do you is it safe to call him a spy within the Manhattan Project? How do you think of him? Yes, uh, uh, you know the title of the film is a compassionate spy, spy, which which I'm sure we'll get to. But um, but yeah, he he voluntarily became a spy, which is you know is also kind of less common. I mean, you would know more about this than me. This is your domain more than mine. But, um, you know, he he had no idea when he decided to do this, how he would go about doing this. And so he plotted with his good friend, Savvy Sachs, 
to figure out how to approach the Soviets to pass along this information. The, the film starts out with <clears throat> images of uh, Ted and his wife, uh, Joan Hall, basically giving what amounts to, I guess you might even call it sort of a confessional that they're recording, it looks like in their home, maybe sitting at the kitchen table uh, on video. And so you you quickly realize that this is a story that this man has carried his entire life. And now we're going to learn the backstory of it. How did you learn about who Ted Hall was and this extraordinary uh, uh, event that he had, this, this confessional, I guess, that he had actually filmed before he died in the late 90s? So I... I first learned about Ted Hall from Dave Lindorf. Dave Lindorf is an investigative journalist who I first met and interviewed for a film I did some years ago called Abacus, Small Enough to Jail. And Dave has a, a keen interest in this part of history. And he, he discovered Ted's story. You'd have to ask him how he discovered it. But he then wrote a piece for Counterpunch magazine. Mm, yeah. Uh, about Ted Hall, which Joan Hall read, and then reached out to uh, to Dave and said, "Thank you for that um, that piece." And that that caused him to strike up a bit of a friendship with Joan. <clears throat> and once he met Joan and started <laughs> to get to know her, he said, "I I really think there's a film here." And fortunately, I was the filmmaker he knew, and so he reached out to me and my colleague uh, Mark Mitten who also worked on Abacus and said, guys, I think there's a film here. And, and so learning about Ted from Dave um, was revelatory. I mean, I, you know, I had no idea, just like most everyone else. Uh, and it was such an extraordinary sort of unbelievable story. So that caused me to um, uh, want to go to Cambridge, England, where Joan lived and sit down with her. And over the course of three or four days, we interviewed her and I came away from that um, just completely believing that this was an important story to tell. A lot of your films, I mean, the, the ones that you're probably most well known for, like Hoop Dreams and The Interrupters and Life Itself, which is the film about the late film critic Roger Ebert, you know, they're all about contemporary issues and 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 really current relevant social issues. Did you have an interest in World War II history or know much about the Manhattan Project when you went into this story? I didn't know a whole lot about the Manhattan Project, but when I was in grad school uh, studying film, I did a minor in 20th century American history. Um, but I would not claim <laughs> to, <laughs> to be incredibly knowledgeable, but it did, it did uh, expose me much more significantly than I had been to, to World War II history. And one of the things I remember learning was much more about the Soviet Union's involvement in World War II and, and how crucial they were to the war effort. You know, growing up, I'm an old guy, and I wonder if, if kids these days in school really learn much of, differently than what I did. You know, growing up, uh, I learned that World War II was won by the United States. You know, we entered right. the war and everything turned around and we saved the day. And the Soviets' um, involvement, much less the fact that they were an important ally, it was something that was mostly skipped over. So so I, I went into the story having some grounding more in World War II, a lot less in in the Manhattan Project. 
uh, and and I learned you know a ton on this, of course, by doing this film. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Ted Hall himself. I mean, you mentioned that he he was at Harvard when he was eighteen years old. I mean, he's a math prodigy. Talk a little bit about where he grows up uh, and and his kind of his early life before he joins the Manhattan Project. Yeah, so he grew up in New York City. Um, his parents were Russian immigrants, uh, which is, I think, very important to the story uh, and, and what Ted ultimately did. Uh, he had an older brother named Ed, uh, who was 11 years older and was also quite brilliant. And he factors into the story in a big way later on. Uh, Ted's dad was a furrier and... Um, you know, he was always brilliant. He graduated from high school at the age of 15, went to Harvard, uh, studied physics. And, you know, there's an interesting moment for me in the film where Joan is sitting around the kitchen table with her daughters, Ruth and Sarah, and they're reading old letters for, that Ted had written to Ed when he was like 16 at Harvard, okay? <laughs> uh, and He's making fun of the way people pronounce Harvard. He says, you know, he spells it Harvard. And, and he's really sort of taking down Harvard's pretentious approach to teaching in this incredibly insightful way. And, you know, you hear him talk about this and you think, wait a second, he's 16. He's at Harvard, which for most people would be like, you know, I, I am I have made it in life. And yet he's he's engaging in this very trenchant critique of their educational philosophy. And I think this this provides a window into Ted's brilliance, but also into his critical thinking, which I think came into play in a big way once he got to the Manhattan Project. Yeah, I, I was struck by that as well, that he he does not sound like what we think of as a teenager or a young man. He sounds, you know, wiser beyond his years and has a real... Um, you know, trenchant kind of critical point of view. So clearly, you know, you establish him in the movie as somebody who is is both a brilliant person, but is highly aware of his surroundings and has and is very has strong opinions too. Yeah, um, and he, and he's also you know he's also incredibly politically minded for such yeah. a young age. You know, I think that's that's one of the other remarkable things. I mean, he was clearly very left in his politics, um, but he wasn't just some sort of knee-jerk leftist. He, you know, he really, really had thought through, I think, in many ways, his his political beliefs and how he arrived at them, and again, at such a young age. How does he get recruited onto the Manhattan Project? Whereas you mentioned, I mean, he is, and I presume probably by far, the youngest member of the team of these brilliant scientists who were gathered together. Yeah. So, what happened is, is the Manhattan Project sent out recruiters. They sent them out to two schools primarily. They sent them to Harvard and they sent them to the University of Chicago because of the strong programs in physics and chemistry that they had there. And they were looking for, you know, junior physicists. I think they were looking for, you know, young, graduating, brilliant physicists who could come out and work on the Manhattan Project and you know, work in a junior capacity and be supportive of all these amazing scientists who had, you know, who, who had joined the project. And so the Harvard physics department recommended uh, Ted, you know, 18 year old Ted, who was just graduating that year. So he had actually he was actually recruited before he graduated from Harvard. And and so 
and he knew, you know, it, 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 it became clear pretty quickly that there was some kind of major weapon that, that was at the heart of this research. And, you know, he was excited about that uh, initially, you know, and you have to remember, um, you know, he, he was Jewish. Uh, there was this concern that he learned soon after he got to Los Alamos that the Germans were, you know, ahead of us in developing this awful weapon. And, you know, he wanted to, to support the Allied cause. What was the work that he initially started doing and then and later w- w- was doing to kind of put him at the center of the action, if you like, in the um, the project to build an atomic weapon? Well, I think he was more in a support role. And, you know, he was doing, you know, I am not a physicist, uh, but and he was he was doing uh, a lot of, you know, utilizing his math brilliance to do some calculations and stuff for just in support of, of one of the scientists. And he really stood out as being, you know, quite brilliant. Um, and it, to, to such an extent that they promoted him to work in working, as it turns out, with Klaus Fuchs uh, in the, uh, on the, the implosion part of the project. And the implosion part, as I understand it, is the part that, that um, leads to the chain reaction that causes the bomb to be so massively destructive. So it was a very, very important part of the research, and it was a very difficult part of the research that they had to solve. And so he got promoted to working in that department because he had demonstrated his brilliance already in 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 his math prowess, as you were as you as you were. You mentioned Klaus Fuchs, who you know was a, a British citizen, uh, but who had, I, I think had lived in Germany and then went to yes. Britain, and who was placed by the Soviets into the program as a spy. Uh, and one of, I think, a number of, of people who was sharing information with the Russians from within the project. Is, is there any indication that Ted Hall knew that Klaus Fuchs was spying for the Soviet Union? I think it's pretty clear that they, that they did not know what each other was up to. I think it's probably pretty certain, of course, that they knew each other because once Ted got promoted into that department, he no doubt dealt with Klaus Fuchs. Right. But, but neither of them shared... With anyone, and and understandably, you know, uh, if you're a spy, I, you know, even a a, a a first time trying to do this kind of work and knowing mm-hmm. nothing about it, the last thing you would probably do is is take a chance on sharing this information. Right, right. So so Ted is there. He's at Los Alamos. Uh, you know, ultimately under the direction of of Robert Oppenheimer. And working with these scientists, and, and you know, and the implosion piece of the of the weapon system is is crucial. They can't build the atomic bomb and make it work without this. At what point does Ted decide that he wants to share information about the Manhattan Project with the Soviet Union, and then why does he do it? What's his rationale? So he went out there when he was eighteen, as we've talked about. Um, he he was able. Mm-hmm given a leave to go home to celebrate his 19th birthday back in New York City. And by the time he returned on that trip, he had made the decision that he wanted to do this. So he, he had been out there less than a year uh, when he made this decision. And Ted, you know, of course, in the film, through the archival interviews that we have of, of him talking about this, you know, explains that that he had a real serious concern that the United States having this weapon all to itself 
in the post-war world, you know, and that's what's so amazing about it. He's already looking beyond the end of World War II and imagining what could come as a result of having this weapon. And this is long before the Trinity um, test blast, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's a theoretical weapon at this point. Yeah, and I think, I think he's already gleaned that they're going to be successful. And, and that if they are, he has this, this terrible thought that he says is in the back of his mind that what if the U.S. has this weapon all to itself? And what if a more right-wing uh, regime came to power, administration came to power in the United States? What might they do with that weapon, especially with the Soviet Union? I mean, Ted, despite the fact that the Soviet Union was being presented to the American people as this treasured ally um, by Roosevelt on down, President Roosevelt. Uh, and, you know, despite the, the sort of propaganda effort to really win the trust of the American people in the Soviet Union as an ally, Ted was sophisticated and smart enough to know that's exactly what it was and that and to imagine the post-war world in which the United States and the Soviet Union would very quickly become at odds. And, you know, given his parents were from Russia, given his left politics, uh, he made this sort of brash and momentous decision. I don't know how brash it was, really, but, but mm. certainly momentous decision that he was going to do something about it. And, you know, it was in the air at Los Alamos. I think that's something that's important to remember. Right. You know, a lot of the scientists, number one, grew increasingly concerned about this very issue. A lot of scientists questioned why the Soviet Union were not included in this effort, given the the number of brilliant scientists in the Soviet Union and the fact that they were an ally. And so this was in the air at Los Alamos. It wasn't just Ted thinking this, but it was Ted who decided to actually act on it instead of just complain to Oppenheimer and General Leslie Groves, who, you know, who oversaw the project. What was it, do you think, that made Ted decide to take that step? Because as you point out, I mean, so many of the other scientists, I mean, as, as far as we know, you know, did not decide to share this information with Russia. Is it, did you get a sense from talking to his wife and, and, and working on this, you know, did he feel that no one else was going to do it or, or, or that he just had a, a moral obligation to take this step, which, of course, I mean, could have, I mean, ended his life quite literally had he been prosecuted. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's all of that. I mean, I think that I think on some level, Ted saw the ferment of concern that was going on at Los Alamos and was influenced by that. Um, I think he I think he pretty accurately saw that most of those scientists were not certainly going to do anything about it, not certainly in that way, and, and, and probably understood that. I think his youth factored into this, too. I think that, hmm. I think that you know, <laughs> being a young man who was brilliant, I think on some level he didn't really think through all of the implications, though, of what this might be for him. I mean, this is before Julius Rosen and Ethel Rosenberg had been arrested, much less executed for their role in all of this. So I don't know that he, you know, he he really played out what could possibly happen to him uh, if he were caught. I mean, 
Joan asks him in the film, in the archival footage, did you, did you, were you scared about, you know, taking this step? And he, he kind of laughs and says, no, and it, almost like realizing like, how insane is that? But I wasn't. Maybe I should have been. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's it, it, that youthful exuberance really it comes across. Um, you know, Joan Hall is 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 really the other major character in the film, and in some ways is even kind of the protagonist in, in your film. And that so much of the story is her um, reflecting. Quite recently, I mean, she she's she's died. Uh, I think after the before the film came out. But but talk about there's a moment when uh, the war is over. Um, obviously, the United States has, has dropped two of the bombs on Japan, and and Ted is going back. I think it's to graduate school, right, at University yes. of Chicago, where he meets uh, the woman that he'll eventually marry. And there's this moment, and you retell it actually with actors doing a dramatization, when Ted tells his his girlfriend, soon to be wife, about what he did during the war, uh, and lets her in on this secret. Tell us that story. Yeah, Joan tells it, and we dramatize it that. They were lying on the floor in in Ted's office uh, at the University of Chicago, where he was a graduate assistant. And Ted proposes to her. And she immediately says yes. But he then says, well, wait a second. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, there's something I need to tell you before you really answer this question. And, And he he spills the beans, as it were, on what he had done during the war. And as Joan tells it, her first reaction was why. And then as Ted explained it, she she understood it because, you know, the thing you have to remember is Joan, too, like Ted, came from parents who immigrated from Russia. Joan, too, was brilliant. She went to the University of Chicago when she was 15. Uh, When she met Ted, she was 17. Joan was also very left in her politics. So these were two peas in a pod in, in many respects. And so as Ted explained his rationale and reason for doing it, Joan immediately got it. And as she said to us, she was so in love with Ted that he could have confessed to killing someone and she still would have married him. I mean, I think that's a joke, but <clears throat> it might not have been. Um, and so, you know, she she decided to to take this on. And and again, I think that um, my guess is is that Joan didn't really think through either. She was so young, what the implications of casting her lot with this man would could possibly mean. She might have even assumed, and I didn't ask her this. You know, I wish I had, but she might have even assumed that since he hadn't been caught, that he would never be caught. Um, but he was certainly clear with her, and he says to her, this is something <clears throat> you can tell no one. You can't even tell your mother. And, of course, she says, oh, God, no, I would never do that. <laughs> um, so he's he's clearly aware that that even though he got away with it uh, up to that point, that there was, there was danger involved, and he wanted her to know that and know what she was saying yes to. It really is such an incredible moment in the story of these two people who, I mean, you know, they, they're so clearly in love with one another and it comes across in the film from the way they talk about one another and some of the footage together. Um, you know, had she said no, I mean, she can't unring the bell. She would have known that he had done this. So, you know, he's taking this extraordinary risk in telling her that she might be scared and, and run away and 
forever be out there, possibly spilling the secret to someone else. Yeah, I, you know, they were so in love. I mean, um, you know, Ted, in his letters to Ed back when he was at Harvard, expressed, uh, he was mystified how anyone would ever want to get married. You know, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Joan tells us in the film that she had made a decision, you know, when she was 17, 18, that she was not going to get married for at least 10 years. Right. You know, for and for a woman of that generation, that that's kind of an extraordinary uh, thing to to say, because, you know, a woman getting married at the age of 27 or 28 would have been in that time considered, you know, a spinster you know, that terrible term. So these were both two people for whom marriage was not a goal in life at all. And yet when they found each other, they were so taken with each other. And I think they saw that they were such kindred spirits. Um, And, you know, they were both very attractive people. Uh, You know, there was Mm -hmm. that. Um, That I think they you know, it, it caused Ted to be willing to take that chance uh, in telling her. And, and I think it also speaks to his fundamental honesty. You know, this was something that he did not want to keep secret, really, in a way. I think in some ways he was looking for someone to share this with, too, someone that he could trust. And, you know, we learn in the film that there were at least two other junctures in his life when they were, you know, long after they were married, where he was tempted to come forward and confess mm-hmm. what he had done. And Joan, of course, played a vital role in discouraging him, saying, you can't do that. Yeah, she knew that it would be destroying both of their lives if he'd done that. Yes, absolutely. Um, so you mentioned that when they, when Joan and Ted get together and they get married, I mean, he hasn't been caught. Um, it's not much later, though, that the FBI does seem to catch on to what Ted has been doing, and they approach him and start to question him. Tell us a little bit about that part of the story, about how how they find out what Ted has been doing. <clears throat> yeah, so during during World War II, the Soviets had this code, which was considered unbreakable, called the Venona Code, which was their intelligence, you know, communication code. And of course, uh, as it turns out, the U.S. eventually broke that code. And when they when they did, they saw all this intelligence, which showed uh, and revealed that Ted Hall um, had been spying for them at Los Alamos. And so, based on all that information, which was quite extensive, that's when the FBI decided to haul Ted in. Now, there was a realization on two parts. One is they did not necessarily at that point, they didn't want the Soviets to be aware that they had broken the code and, and they knew Ted had spied. I think there was no question in their mind that Ted had done it. Uh, but they also assumed rightly that he probably was still in touch with Soviet uh, agents. And so that if they somehow revealed to Ted that they had this information from that code that that could get back to the Soviets and that that would would be a problem for the FBI and the CIA. The other piece of it is um, uh, is, is that the lead investigator uh, for the FBI, who eventually became a judge years later, said that that the Venona Code uh, 
documents would probably not be admissible in court. So, so the FBI needed to interrogate Ted and they needed to get something on him. And the, the quickest way to that was to try to break him and get him to confess. So they hauled him into the office in the Chicago Bureau and they began questioning him and they, they made it clear to him that they knew a lot <clears throat> and they hoped to break him. Interestingly, Klaus Fuchs was also treated this way by British intelligence huh. after the war. And Klaus Fuchs broke and he served 14 years in prison. And so, but Ted, who was all of, let's see, he, he would have been all of what, 23, 24, right, early 25. 20s, yeah. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> when they bring, when they haul him in, he plays it very cool. Uh, he does, he, he does not say anything. This is on a Friday. Um, so after a full day of interrogation, they ask him to return again on Monday. And then over the weekend, he and Savi Sachs and their wives, um, and Savi was living in Chicago at that point. And Savi knew that he'd been spying and it helped him do it. to some. It, and it helped him do it. And it became clear during the interrogation on Friday that Savi was probably next door being questioning because at one point the, the FBI agents excused themselves, went next door <clears throat> and berated Savi into a confession and Ted could hear it through the walls. And, you know, both Ted and Joan speculated that that was purposeful, that they wanted him to hear that exchange going on next door to further underscore that they had the goods on them. And so they went for a walk, you know, in the park in the middle of winter in Chicago, and they decided that their best course of action would be to co stop cooperating completely. And so Ted goes back in on Monday morning, as they asked him to. And before they could even get underway with their questioning, he says, I've made a decision that I'm not going to say anymore. Uh, and he gets up and he walks out and we dramatize all of this. And it's all exact, it's all true. And I mean, part of what makes it so compelling is that both Jonas and Ted, you know, from the archival footage are telling this story to you as we, as we dramatize it. And it's this very dramatic moment where he goes to the elevator, he's followed by these FBI agents in a menacing way and he leaves the building and he's shocked that they didn't arrest him. <laughs> Um, and, and I think that, but it was, it was clear to him, um, that if they could have arrested him, I think they would have maybe even on Friday, they wouldn't have let him go home. Uh, and so it, it becomes clear to, to Ted and Savi that their best course of action is to stop cooperating because they clearly don't have enough evidence to hold them. And that's one. <laughs> and so he ran and caught a cab <laughs> and went home. It's amazing. I mean, he so he knows he's in the sights of the FBI. He has this, you know, in, in, in intelligence, there's a term called gray mail, which is, you know, the idea that you have information that the government also doesn't want getting out if they were to actually prosecute you. So he has, you know, this sense that basically they know who he is. They know what he did, but he's confident that they're not going to come after him. But then, of course, he has to live the rest of his life in fear of whether they, you know, might change their mind. And, and, and you know, did, did he did he ever feel that he was 
out of the woods? I mean, did he feel that this was kind of hanging over him much of his life? And, and also, what did he think when he saw people like the Rosenbergs, uh, you know, being executed for for sharing information with the Soviet Union? Yeah, so I, I don't think Ted or Joan ever felt uh, they were out of the woods. And part of that was because, um, you know, after that interrogation, uh, they were clearly being followed everywhere. And, and, and you know, baldly. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't some kind of attempt to follow them in a secret way. They were, they were, they, they, the FBI was following them in a way to, to announce to them that we are following you and we are looking into you. They found out from friends that friends were being interviewed by the FBI to see if they had said anything to them about it. And the thing about it is, is that both Ted and Joan, kind of in an extraordinary way, even before the FBI came calling, had been extremely careful. They, they didn't say anything to anyone about any of this. And they even took precautions not to speak about it in their home. This is before the FBI came calling. They took precautions to never speak about this. They didn't speak about it hardly at all. But when they did, they would only do it if they went on a walk. So you know, maybe they saw a lot of spy movies and they just knew <laughs> what 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 was possible. But but the the level of of care they took uh, to to not reveal anything, even before the FBI came calling, it was extraordinary. And then, of course, once the FBI came calling, they redoubled their efforts. And you know, we show uh, that you know after the Friday interrogation, they were so worried about the amount of leftist literature they had in the home uh, and, you know, and contacts with leftists because they were both involved in leftist causes that they, you know, they packed all that stuff up in a suitcase and went and threw it in the river in Chicago. Uh, So they took extraordinary precaution, but I think this hung over their head their entire lives. And then, of course, when the Rosenbergs were arrested, and that was a huge story. I mean, that was an international story. Um, and that had happened, you know, interestingly enough, right before the, the FBI brought Ted in for interrogation, right? So that was in the news. And, you know, one of the things the FBI agents did was they put a picture of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg in front of Ted and said, do you know these folks? Well, he mm-hmm. didn't know them. Uh, so he was telling the truth. But in reading about it, he, just from reading the papers, you know, he gleaned that they, in all likelihood, were probably guilty, which is interesting because so many of the people on the left believed that at that time that Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were innocent and there were many protests on their behalf. But Ted gleaned that he was probably guilty. And, you know, Joan tells this story in the film that at one point he came to her and he said, you know, what I did was far more significant than what the Rosenbergs are being charged with having done. I think I should come forward and confess and maybe I can save them. <clears throat> and Joan at that point says, you, you can't save them. You will only destroy us. And she's, she's absolutely right. You know, it's interesting, late in the editing process, um, I got contact with Michael Mirpool, the one of the sons of the Rosenbergs, who you know still living. And I sent these sections to them that that have to do with his parents and Ted and Joan. 
I wanted them to see what we were doing. Uh, I guess I wanted them to feel okay about what we were doing in terms of what, what we were dramatizing. Uh, and he wrote back and he's, you know, he, he said it was quite powerful. And he also said, and Joan was absolutely right. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Joan was absolutely right. And you know what? The, the truth is, is that Joan might very well have been executed right alongside Ted. Absolutely. Because, you know, because Ethel, right. Ethel really <clears throat> wasn't guilty of espionage. Uh, actually the, I mean, you know, this, Ted wouldn't have been charged and neither were the Rosenbergs charged with espionage because the, the Soviets were our allies. And so espionage technically was not what they engaged in. I mean, no, espionage is, I'm sorry, let me back that up. Um, you will know this, that, that because the Soviets were our allies, what the Rosenbergs did, they could not be, he could not be, they could not be charged with being traitors. And nor could Ted, because the, the Soviets were our allies. They could only be charged with espionage. Um, but it didn't matter. That distinction didn't matter because both Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were executed. And I think in all likelihood, both Joan and Ted might very well have been executed. Right, because, I mean, Joan was essentially, I mean, an accomplice after the fact. And so far yeah. she knew what he had done. And, and it could have potentially led back to their friend Savvy Sachs as well, right. who they were both very close to. Absolutely. Um, how did Ted and and Joan grapple with? I mean, yes, there's this this moral um, obligation that Ted felt to share this information with Russia so that America wouldn't have a monopoly on nuclear weapons, and particularly if a government were to come to power in the U.S. that might actually want to use them again. Um, but obviously, you know, there I think aware or maybe you could tell us when they do become aware of you know the things you know that that Stalin's regime is you know is 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 he's killing his own people and it's not necessarily it's not a free society either do they grapple with what's happening when they're also then giving this technology or he's giving and sharing some of the insights about this technology with another regime that is not necessarily one that is looking to you know protect its citizens liberties and can could also be a threat yeah, I think, you know, <clears throat> Joan speaks to that in the film. I think at the time that Ted was giving the secrets to the Soviets, he did not know what Stalin, the, you know, just how much of a dictator and, a, and a, a murderer, frankly, that Stalin was. And I'm not sure that, that there, there was some press raising questions about Stalin, but, you know, the U.S. government and Roosevelt, you know, Roosevelt sent his ambassador to the Soviet Union to come back and write a book about the glories of the Soviet Union as an ally and of the people. And, you know, we feature in the film, this incredible film that was yes. made by, by a great director named Michael Curtiz called Mission to Moscow. And, you know, <laughs> there's one there's one part in the film, which I, you know, uh, in that film, which is well worth watching in its entirety. It's a, it's, it's an extraordinary film. Um, uh, but I feature this one part where where Ambassador Davies is speaking to Stalin in the in the in the film. And he says, I think history will will remember you as a great man. Um, <laughs> it's an astonishing <laughs> film. I looked at this like, my God, they made this. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. They had some regrets later. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> but, 
you know, so so there, so to whatever extent there were feelings that Stalin was was you know was a bad and terrible person leader. It was debatable, I think, during the war, and to the extent that this U.S. actually knew what Stalin was up to, they certainly didn't want it made public because they were trying to promote the Soviet Union as an ally. And I think Ted Ted was a leftist. Ted was sympathetic to the Soviet Union. His parents were from Russia. I think he was part of that generation of leftists who wanted to believe, frankly, that the Soviet Union was the legitimate and better alternative to capitalist America. And so there was some naivete, absolutely. But I think it wasn't until after he after the war when a lot of that became much more clear. And Joan speaks about the fact that it was hard for them as leftists to know what to believe because mm-hmm. there was certainly plenty of, of false propaganda out there about the Soviet Union as a whole. And it was hard to separate what was true from what was false. But, but they both obviously eventually came to understand um, the truth about Stalin. And Ted says... Uh, in the film, uh, and Joan also speaks to this, that, you know, that had he, you know, Joan says that had Ted said in later years that had he known uh, the full truth of Stalin and his regime, he he wouldn't have had the stomach to pass the secrets to the Soviets. And then Ted, speaking to the very same question, says <clears throat> that ultimately... You know, he didn't do this for the Soviet regime. He did this because he thought it would save the Soviet people, the lives of Soviet people, because should the U.S. do some kind of preemptive strike on the Soviet Union, the post-war world, you know, millions and millions of lives would have been lost. And, you know, one of the things we we go to some length in the film to show is, is that Ted's fear of that happening, and people might hear that and say, oh, my God, of course we wouldn't do that. You know, why would we do that? Um, well, the U.S. was very much game planning scenarios for that very thing, for a Soviet strike. And they were building up their arsenal of nuclear weapons. The war's over. And the U.S. was fast tracking the buildup of nuclear weapons. And it certainly, it certainly coincided with the game planning, which called for, you know, over a hundred nuclear weapons to effectively preemptively wipe the Soviet Union off the face of the earth and the U S as we make clear in the film, you know, they, they threatened the Soviet Union. We don't say this, but they also threatened China and North Korea with dropping the bomb. uh, If they didn't do what the U S wanted in certain um, geopolitical situations and, you know, if you're one of these other countries, including the Soviet Union, and you've seen the U.S. drop two bombs on Japan, I think you take that threat pretty seriously. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent 
potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare twenty. Yeah, and it, it underscores too just the the amazing um, <clears throat> the boldness. I mean, some might even say the hubris of, of Ted Hall to say I'm going to make this decision myself. You know, at eighteen, yes. nineteen years old to do this when you know it, it's you know policymakers and leaders of nations that are making decisions. But it really, I mean, that dichotomy between you know those two levels of power is so extraordinary, and you know the fact that he has this knowledge gives him such an extraordinary level of power too. Do we know if the information that Ted shared, uh, particularly about the implosion device, helped the Soviets ultimately build their own atomic weapon or, or develop it more quickly than they would have had they not had the information that Ted shared? Yeah, well, I think that's an important distinction. Remember, the Soviet Union had brilliant scientists. They were, yeah. they were working on it. U.S. intelligence knew that the Soviet Union was going to eventually develop the bomb. I, I think there was no question of that. Their projections were that it would take them as many as 10 years following uh, Hiroshima before the Soviets would have a viable bomb. Uh, the belief is that Ted passing secrets along with Klaus Fuchs, along with some British spies, you know, others, Rosenbergs, uh, helped the Soviet Union get the bomb within five years instead of ten, which mm. which shocked the U.S. And it was it was the it was the Soviets getting the bomb within five years that really caused the U.S. to really realize that they must have had significant spying going on at Los Alamos, and that's that's what then really galvanized this effort to figure out who had done it. Which, you know, interestingly enough, made its way back to Oppenheimer <clears throat> because, you know, Oppenheimer, like Ted, was a, a leftist. Um, he had had sympathies with communist 
party, uh, if not having joined the Communist Party. He, he was very sympathetic to the Communist Party in the United States. And so, you know, he became, you know, suspect number one right. for the U.S. government to think that Oppenheimer had actually been the one who had spied and shared secrets with the Soviets. Yeah, this, it's, um, it's kind of the central element of the plot of uh, the new Christopher Nolan movie, Oppenheimer, is this question of whether or not <laughs> Oppenheimer was actually a communist and a security risk. Um, why do you think that Ted Hall ultimately decided to come forward near the end of his life? And he, he died in 1999, I think. Um, and to tell this story through archival footage on camera, like why why did he feel it was important to document it? Uh, before he died. So what I think what happened is, um, you know, eventually, and we, we indicate this in the film, that eventually uh, NSA declassified the Venona documents from, you know, at that point it was, it was 50 years earlier right. that this had all happened. They declassified the documents. <clears throat> so they became available to the press. And once the press... Uh, was able to get these documents, then it was just a matter of time before they would figure out what Ted had done. Right. And come calling. And they did. And I think, you know, what what clearly happened is Ted knew that this was going to come out publicly uh, at this point. And he was also ill. He had uh, cancer and he had Parkinson's and he knew his days were numbered and he decided um, that he needed to record for posterity um, his feelings and what he had done and why. And so he, he, he engaged in two interviews um, on his own volition. One was, um, he did with Joan, which is extraordinary, and then we feature it prominently in the film, where the both of them are sitting at the kitchen table, as you said earlier. And Joan is sort of acting as the the interviewer, but she also, of course, comments because that's Joan. She has a lot to say, <laughs> and <laughs> always, and yes. <clears throat> and she's part of the story. So it was it was really wise and smart that she was a part of that interview. And so they recorded that interview, and they left it with a lawyer. Um, who was to, you know, squirrel it away safely. And then Ted also gave a brief interview to a, a, an anti-nuke activist around that time that we also feature in the film. And then there was another interview that was done, which was quite extraordinary. Um, and it was done by um, uh, uh, CNN and BBC did this massive series called The Cold War. And one of the episodes was devoted to the spying during that time. And so they came and they interviewed Ted. And they interviewed him for about three hours, of which they used a minute and a half. Oh, my God. Um, and I got this. I found out about this from Joan. Joan had all these interviews in her possession. Part of the understanding, I think, with the CNN, BBC folks was that if he sat down to do this interview... <clears throat> that he wanted to have a copy of the entire interview for his own purposes. Uh, so clearly, in all these cases, they're wanting to have record, knowing that Ted might pass on. Um, 
And so that's how the interviews came to be. That's how it came to be public. And then once it became public, Ted was approached by uh, Joe Albright and Marcy Kunstel um, about doing a book because most of the press, as we indicate, was pretty negative towards Ted. And they approached him and they said, look, we want to tell your story honestly, fully, but also really allow you to speak to your story. And he agreed to then become part of that book, which, which, you know, is an extraordinary book about the whole enterprise. Was he afraid though, that by coming out and confessing, which, you know, as you, as you dramatize in the film was something that he refused to do, even under great pressure, that he was putting himself at risk of being prosecuted, even though he didn't have much left, much time left to live. I think he, I think he knew that that was a possibility. Um, in fact, when, when the bombshell authors first approached him, <clears throat> he said no. And uh, they, they, uh, Joe Albright flew to Cambridge, knocked on his door <laughs> and wow. asked him if, uh, if, you know, if he would do this. And he said no. And then he came and then he left. And then Ted started talking about it with Joan and Joan said, I think you may want to consider doing this. Um, and I think there, and so he called Joe up at his hotel room or whatever and said, I've changed my mind. And, and I think that, uh, Ted, Ted really thought that he wouldn't be alive. I mean, Mar Marcy in the film says that by the time that book came out, that Ted thought he wouldn't be alive. And really that was his public interview. The other two interviews that I mentioned, they were not being shared with the press or anyone. They were, they were being, you know, kept by the family, you know, by Ted and Joan. <clears throat> so the real, the real risky interview for him to have done really was this interview with CNN and BBC and, um, and also then participating with the bombshell book. It's interesting. I mean, I wasn't able to get into it in the film, but the, the, the CNN BBC interview he's being much more cagey about things. He, he oh, never, interesting. you know, I was, I, t I was tempted to put a section in there where they're trying to get him to explain why he did what he did. And he's so cagey about it that the guy is increasingly frustrated with his answer. Like he's almost <laughs> not admitting it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sort of is, but not, you know, and he really wants him to say it more boldly and he's yeah. getting frustrated, but, but <laughs> can you please just say, <laughs> I gave the Soviets the spy. Yeah. The documents. yeah. yeah. But but with the bombshell folks, he was completely candid. And mm. as Marcy says in the film, he really thought he wouldn't be alive by the time that book came out. And we don't have in the film, the authors um, did take their their transcripts of their interviews with Ted and they stored them in the Cayman Islands because their publisher told them that um, should the FBI change its mind and decide to come after Ted at that point. That, that they needed to have those documents out of the country in a place where they could not get access to them. That's so smart. there was, there yeah. was some fear of that, <clears throat> but I think he didn't think he'd be alive. And I think on some level too, it's, it's like it had been 50 years if they really wanted him. Uh, I think on some level there was a part of him that felt like they would have come after him by now. Right. <clears throat> and, and, and with the declassification of these documents, they would have used them as an impetus to come after him. And they didn't. Right. And so, I mean, yeah. you know. 
the, the, the press of, of prosecuting an old, infirm man may have been <laughs> not what you, yep, yeah. I was looking for. But, you know, one of the things I, I was considering as I was watching your film is, of course, you know, Joan lives for many more years. I mean, I yes. think almost 20 more years, um, has a whole other phase of her life. So when she sits down with you to relive this, I mean, does she have any concerns about what this might do? to her, maybe what it might do to the family. I presume the kids found out when the Venona documents came out, but maybe they knew before yes. then. But what was her consideration for sitting down and, and the risk that she put herself at by talking to you? Yeah. So I, I think she was very confident that nothing would come of it at that point, because if they hadn't prosecuted Ted, why would they go after her? Right. And she's um, living in England at this point, too. So there's she's living in England. Yeah. She's 91 years old when I met her. Um, I mean, talk about bad, bad looking, uh, you know, optics. Oh yeah. <laughs> 91 and, and fierce too. <laughs> and fierce. Yeah. And, and won't back down. And no, no, not at may, all. maybe, maybe even would be fine with be mating an example of. I, I actually wondered that, but yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think that, no, I think the overriding reason Joan decided she wanted to participate in this film was simply because she was very happy with the bombshell book, but it came and went. And I think she saw this as an opportunity um, to tell Ted's story that might reach more people and to, uh, so that people would know what he did because she was so, she was so proud of him to, you know, her dying day. And I know that some people watching this film, including some critics or, you know, they feel like, um, you know, what Ted did was, was wrong. Uh, and, and, and I, I hope that the film gives you, a, a place to come to that conclusion yourself, even though it's clearly a sympathetic account of Ted and Joan and what he did. Clearly it is. Uh, but I hope it gives you room, uh, through some of the some of the voices you hear in the film, including Ted questioning what he'd done, mm. to come to a different conclusion about it. But Joan never wavered. Joan, Joan, unlike Ted, never wavered in what he did. She believed to her dying day that he had done the right thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's interesting you, you you bring this up because you know the, the film is very much a sympathetic portrayal, and in some ways, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this. I mean, it's I don't think of it so much as journalism in the sense that, you know, you're not really bringing in a counter argument too much. People arrive at that point if they want to very much. so, And the film makes a lot of room for people to decide on their own whether it was right or wrong what what Ted did. I kind of like to put that question to you. I mean, you probably have an opinion on it and you've constructed the film in a way that's very much looking at it from from his perspective. So. What do you think about what Ted did? Well, I think that what Ted did was incredibly brave, and and it and it was it was not a decision he made lightly. I don't think, and it wasn't a decision he made that was um, misinformed. I mean, that's the the thing is, is that you know Ted didn't have access to. President Roosevelt. He didn't have access to Leslie Groves, the general, or any of the military planners and what was going on. 
he what he gleaned about what was possible he gleaned from i think the conversations that were going on <clears throat> at los alamos uh among the scientists but and also his own brilliant sort of thinking through of what could be possible and 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 i think history has proven that what he feared was entirely possible that it could have happened that the us could have used the bomb in the post-war world it, they certainly were using it to to have their way geopolitically and they could have certainly used it to preemptively wipe the soviet union off the face of the earth would they have done it no one can know the um but so i look at what ted did and i understand the counter arguments um i understand but 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 i think there's I, I I look at what Ted did as being brave and thoughtful, and and very possibly crucial. Uh, so I guess I guess I'm in Ted's corner. You know, I didn't I didn't I didn't, and maybe I should have. I, I f freely admit, maybe I should have. I didn't bring in an expert who would rake Ted over the coals about what he did and lay out all the reasons why what he did was wrong. And it's true, the film doesn't do that. And, and I know that some people watching the film want that. Um, maybe I should have done that. But I, I guess I felt like I wanted to tell this story from a, through the prism of this couple, this love story, through their eyes, through their experience, uh, more than anything, and not try to sort of do a, a much more analytical uh, treatment of, of his life and, and his actions. I wanted as few uh, experts as possible in this film. In fact, if I could have done it without a single expert, I would have done it without a single expert. And then people really would have been upset. Um, <laughs> Is that because you just wanted the voices of, of Ted and Joan to tell the story? Yeah, I wanted this to be a, a deeply personal account of two extraordinary people and what happened and why. And, and, I, and I guess I felt like because Ted had his own misgivings later in life that he articulates, and I guess I felt that because Savvy Sax's kids, Savvy's long gone, but Savvy Sax's kids who, who we feature in the film, um, his son, particularly Boria, express great um, um, skepticism about about what he views as their naivete in doing yeah. what they did and that what they did was wrong. You know, I guess I felt like that voice of questioning it is in the film, but was in it in a way that felt to me that kept it in that personal realm, which is what I wanted to do. Um, you know, so many espionage stories are about the espionage and the geopolitics and the drama of it all and to me this was not that story it doesn't even fit it doesn't even fit the tv and movie versions of way espionage happens you know here's this couple that got away with it uh they lived a life where they raised three daughters and tried to do their best to have a normal life i mean this is not the americans the tv series right you know this they is, never did anything like this again. Yeah, they never did anything like this again. When they stopped, the Soviets didn't threaten them. Uh, when he stopped giving secrets, they didn't. The Soviets didn't kill him. 
<laughs> so that the secret could never be not, you know, it's like none of that happened. And, and they, they had a sort of, of an ability to sort of see their way through this very difficult time and, and deal with this in a way that is kind of extraordinary. And that, that's the story I wanted to tell and the love story between the two of these, these remarkable people. And so, you know, yeah. That's the film I made. <laughs> uh, and, and it really is. And I have to say, though, it is that story. And I, and I think you're right that Savvy's son, because it's one of his own children saying, I don't think he should have done it. I, I do think that that resonates more profoundly than, you know, an expert that you might bring on. And there is one person you quote in the in the film basically saying, you know, he should have been tried and shot. So you do get that view. But it's that family viewpoint that I think is kind of the more devastating critique of when, you know, one of, one of the, their own children is, is saying this. So that I think that comes through. And, and there's one other familial dimension. We hinted at this at the beginning of our conversation that I think of as kind of this amazing coda on the story yeah. uh, of Ted Hall. And that is his brother, Edward. Um, do you want to tell us who his brother was and what he is claimed to fame is? Yeah, this is <clears throat> this is the part of the story that if Hollywood ever does this yeah. story, <laughs> you would say, "Oh, come on, they didn't Can't have to make make up, make up stuff yeah. like that." I mean, come on, it's dramatic enough. Did you really have to go make up the thing about his brother Ed? Well, no, it's it's all true. Which is that Ed, eleven years older than Ted, was in the Air Force. He was an engineer in the Air Force. He was. <clears throat> He was probably as brilliant at engineering as Ted was at physics. And he was the primary designer of the Air Force's rocket program that led at first to the Atlas missile uh, launches and then eventually to the development of the ICBM uh, missiles, which eventually would carry nuclear warheads in the arms race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Um, Ed is in the Air Force Hall of Fame because of his contributions <laughs> to this. And at a certain point, once the FBI discovered Ted, they, it didn't take them long to figure out that his brother Ed was the same Ed Hall that was doing all this important work. I think they initially feared that, oh my God, was Ed a spy too? <laughs> band of brothers here, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think they, I think, and so they approached him about this. He knew nothing about it. And so one of the things we show in the film is, is that he made this impromptu visit to Chicago to Ted and went for a walk with him and said, what's going on? <laughs> Why are they asking me these questions? Well, Ed came clean to his brother. I mean, Ted came clean to his brother, Ed and told him what he had done. And so the, so the, the, the Air Force and the FBI continued to sort of hound uh, Ed to provide them with information or to turn on his brother and provide him with information. <clears throat> and he refused outright to do it. I mean, Ted talks about this in the film that they kind of threatened to take away his you know, his clearance, uh, and maybe, I don't know, he was a Colonel in the, in the, uh, in the air force. Maybe, maybe they would bust him down a rank. And he basically said, do what you got to do. Um, he refused to do it. There was such a strong bond between these two brothers that he was unwilling to cooperate in any way. And 
there's evidence that has come forth since we finished the film. Dave Lindorf is writing a book who was one of the producers on the film and who found the story originally. He's, he's writing a book that's coming out uh, later this year. <clears throat> he found documents um, that show that the FBI really kind of backed away to some degree uh, on Ted because of Ed and a fear of the of what it would mean uh, to Ed if they were prosecuting his brother, and also the public embarrassment, which which Ted speaks about in the film, the public embarrassment that could accrue to the FBI if it was suddenly revealed that the brother of this spy was the head of the the missile program for the United States government. It's just, it's an absolutely astonishing part of the story. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the, the and, and, and the confidence that he kept of his brother is so remarkable. And, and of course, you know, and he's not, and Ed is not deterred in his work. I mean, the intercontinental ballistic missile is the technology that creates the modern environment in which the Soviets and the Americans could destroy the world because these bombs are now on top of rockets that can fly between continents in a matter of minutes. It's just, you're, you're very right to say the dramatic, it, it is so poignant <laughs> and pregnant <laughs> that I think Hollywood wouldn't write it in a script, but it's true. Well, and, and here's the thing, we didn't put this story in and I kind of wish I had. <clears throat> There's uh, when, when Joan and Ted back in the late 90s are doing that interview together and they're talking about this at one point, Joan says that they had a dinner party where uh, Ed and his wife were over uh, and, and that um, she, uh, Ed's, uh, Ed's wife at one point says, expresses with pride that, that, that her husband was responsible for um, basically the, you know, the mutually assured destruction, which was saving the world from nuclear holocaust. And, <laughs> and Joan says, uh, no, Ted did that. And she oh. looks, and she looks at Ted, she looks at, she looks at them with a kind of quizzical look. And it's, it's clear, I think, that she didn't know. Oh my and God. so they didn't say anything more. It just was this comment, and they moved on. But I, we did talk to Ed's children because I thought we might want to interview them for the film. And I didn't interview them because they said basically they didn't know anything, that he never talked to them about any of it. Wow. Maybe a subject for another movie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, that's, that's extraordinary. Um well, we've reached the end of our time, and as is tradition here on our podcast, Chatter, the very last question that I'm going to ask you is uh, one that is selected. You can't see it, but I'm actually holding the Chatter box right here. So I'm going to select a pre-written question at random, uh, and that is going to be our, our farewell question uh, today. So <laughs> the question for you is well, – this, this is a pretty good one, I think uh, – uh, since we're reflecting on you know youthful exuberance and, and the wisdom of the young – uh, if you could give one piece of advice to your 20-year-old self, what would it be? Oh, my God. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> well, I, I would say, having done this film, I would say, um, you know, have the courage of your convictions to act. I mean, I think that's 
you know, that's what Ted did. I mean, when I was 20, I, I of course was an idiot, <laughs> basically, you know, I mean, I was, you know, like I, most I, of I, us. <laughs> yeah, I really was an idiot. Um, I mean, I was in college and I, I, I hadn't quite yet decided that I wanted to even be a good college student. So, so <laughs> much know, less th- a filmmaker, <laughs> much less a filmmaker. So there was, there was probably a lot of advice I could give my 20 year old self wow. uh, <laughs> as I look back on it. But I think that for, for, for anyone, you know, there's a lot of young people today. Uh, and I think Ted would be in, encouraged um, by what he sees among young people today who are, who are looking at the world around us and looking at the threats to the world around us and, you know, you know, not the nuclear threat, which is still there, uh, but looking at the threat of climate change, uh, for example, and have decided that enough's enough and that we can't, that, that we, we can't leave this to the elders, to the older folks, to the people in power to solve this problem because they're clearly not doing it. You know, when I, when I read about the, the decision was, that was made in Montana, um, uh, where they, you know, they, the, they won that um, lawsuit against the state to force the state to really take climate change seriously. And that was brought by young people. You know, I'm heartened. I think Ted would be really heartened by that. Uh, you know, at the end of the film, he says, he's asked what, he, what, what advice he would give to the next generation. And his advice, which is basically that, it's like, do not leave this to the people in power to dictate where the world goes, is advice that we, we certainly need to heed today. Well, it seems like you follow that advice with your own films that you've made, too. Well, thank you. I, <laughs> I, I, I've become a more engaged citizen. That's yes. true. <laughs> well, and, uh, and, we're, and we're luckier for it. So, um, Steve James, thank you very much for coming on to talk to us today. The film is A Compassionate Spy. Uh, and uh, people can, uh, where can they find the film, by the way? You can find it uh, on the, 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 the usual suspect streaming platforms where you pay for it. But it's not expensive. It's a, it's a, it's a bargain. Um, and then it's, it's also playing in select theaters around the country if you're lucky enough to live in one of those places. Great. Well, folks should check it out. Uh, it's well with your time. It's a great story. And um, Steve, again, thanks for coming on and talking to us about today. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.